Please be seated. I've been thinking, trying to think of a subtle way to introduce this, and I haven't been able to, so I'm just going to ask you to do an exercise with me for the first half of this. And when we're through it, you'll know that we're halfway done as well. <laughs> and I always told you guys didn't laugh. My brother's a stand-up comedian, so I'm very self-conscious when nobody laughs. <laughs> so this is what I'd like you to do, is we're, we're going to try to enter this gospel reading, but not at all in a subtle way. I'm not going to lead you very gently there as a good preacher would and trick you into finding yourself in the middle of the story. I'm just going to tell you to go there. Imagine that you are this man. If you are someone who has full function or feeling in your body, imagine that you are a person who is paralyzed in some way. It doesn't say in what way that this person is. And imagine that you're flat on your back. If we were in any other kind of space, I would ask you to lie down, but that's probably not appropriate for here. But imagine that you're lying down. Now imagine that you're lying on a bed that is somewhat familiar to you, and all of a sudden, some of your friends come by. The same old friends. So for this part of the imagining, don't try to think back to first century friends, but to current friends, friends that you know. Ones very much like the ones that are sitting around you in this room, the kind of people that believe in you when you don't believe that there's much of you to believe in, the people that support you when you aren't sure what to do, the people that are with you when you need to talk or when you hate what has just happened in your life, what bad things you have caused, those really, really good ones, the important ones, and maybe even some of the less good ones, depending on how many people you think that it will take to carry you around for the story. So imagine they're coming at you and you are lying down in your bed. And what you overhear them saying is that they're talking about Jesus, your neighbor, a man from your town, who has become quite well known. He has become a famous teacher. He's a controversial guy. He's made some enemies among very influential leaders in your community, particularly the religious people in your community. These are the same people who don't want to get close to you anymore because you had that accident and now you can't move. The people who've told your family and your friends to abandon you because you have obviously sinned in some great way, really badly and are now being punished by God by this slow death. So your friends are chatting away, and they come to let you know, as they get closer to you, that they're going to take you to see Jesus, because they've heard he's coming back this way. And he's been healing, as well as teaching. So what harm can it do? We'll just go and see. So maybe you're excited. Remember, you're still lying down. There's not much you can do about their idea. But more likely, you'd rather not go out there where all the jerks are, these are the same people that give you a hard time all the time. Someone will say something about why you are the way you are. Someone will pull their children away, even if they say nothing. Some teacher will use you as the example for their street sermon on the wages of sin and immorality. But your faithful and sometimes annoying friends don't care what you think. So your friends do a one, two, three, and up you go on your bed. So if you've ever been in a hospital, you know what this feels like in a hospital bed on one of those gurneys or being lifted from bed to bed, completely and utterly helpless. So you can see the sky rolling by as your friends are walking along or the landscape to your side if you turn your head. There are small houses and trees and it's a rough walk. Your friends aren't really very good at this. And all the usual things in your neighborhood and the people in your neighborhood. Who knows how strong these friends of yours are, so you must be tensed and ready in case something goes wrong with this plan. There's really nothing you can do but fall. And the reading says 
As these friends of Jesus are picking their, these friends are picking their way down the dirt path with the pallet of their friend, Jesus sees them and walks over to them. It doesn't say that they do a thing to get his attention. He's moved, apparently, by their love or their awkwardness or something, because he comes over to see what's happening, essentially. You have to wonder how their love was being displayed. You hope in, in their great skill at carrying their friend down the road. But Jesus notices them, and remember, it's, he is noticing you. You're relying on this pallet, helpless and guarded, ready for all of the negative language and the hate that will probably come your way, ready to be disappointed or humiliated, and really already humiliated out there in the daylight again. And Jesus walks over into your line of sight and smiles at you and says, your sins are forgiven. Now take a moment. What do you do next in this story? What would you do on your palate? It doesn't say that you can't speak. What would you think or feel? Your sins are forgiven. Are you thankful or relieved, stunned that it could be that simple? Are you sad? Are you confused? What sins can I commit? I can't move. Are you angry? You too believe that I deserve this? Your sins are forgiven, he says. But before you can respond out loud, the same old voices jump in. Who is he to forgive sins? Why would anyone say that? Clearly his sins aren't forgiven. He's lying on a cot and can't move. Blah, blah, blah. You can hear all the swirling around. And no matter what your initial thought was, now the tears are burning in your eyes. It shouldn't bother you at all this many years later, but it does. How dare they? How dare I not be ready to hear it again? But this Jesus character threw us off, didn't he? He didn't say anything that we would have expected him to say. And as the fighting swirls around you and you struggle to keep it together to not cause your friends to worry too much or to feel too bad, they've been standing there like stone. You know you are far too heavy for them at this point. But they who had been hopeful are now mortified and afraid. What will happen next? Will they be able to get you out of there if it gets ugly? Have they just made it all worse? And then this guy, Jesus, your former neighbor, this guy you've probably known your entire life, says to you, get up and walk. And you feel things you haven't felt in a long time. You feel some kind of life in your legs again. And you think you probably could just get up. Like he said, and you sit up and push a foot over the edge of your pallet and then another and find the rocky ground below and put your bare feet against it and then push the force of your body up. And there you are standing and you take the edge of that bed in your hand and lift it. And it is very light without you on it. And it drops from the hands of your stupefied friends, mouths and eyes wide open and you begin to walk because he told you to. Your humiliation has been transformed into healing. The risk of your friends has realized an unimaginable result. You are healed. Now what are you going to do? The prime minister of Spain used that word humiliation in the address that you heard read earlier to the legislature after the vote that won same-sex marriage in Spain. This was a couple of years ago, and his speech was 
stunning, beautifully done. But he used the word humiliation. When I first read it, I thought it was too much, and maybe it didn't translate correctly culturally and linguistically. I don't experience my day-to-day life as full of humiliations. I don't think. But as I read on, I wonder if, yes, I do, and if many of us do. And maybe it is quite dangerous for many of us that we are a generation that has learned to survive with some freedoms, many, many more than the generations before us, but only with some and without many basic human rights. We are very much like this man on the pallet. The fact that he has survived is significant enough. It should have been enough that in his time that his broken body had, had le- he had, was allowed to remain in his village. His broken body could have meant that he was cast out and left to die. But no, somebody or some groups of people loved him. His mother or father or sister or brother or lover or child loved him. Someone could not bear to let him starve, and so he is alive. And he has friends. It should have been enough. It was plenty, actually. It was more than he could have expected. And then, God bless him, he has friends who have hope crazy hope that they are willing to risk his safety and protection to try to realize. They haul him out into that cruel world of his village, that village in which the religious leaders are the most hateful residents. They expose him to humiliation because they believe there is even more to his life than he knows to expect. We are sitting on that pallet, many of us. I like to believe that I'm one of those friends, but I don't think that religious people get to be the good guys in a story like this. We are sitting right there on that pallet, and we know that we should be happy to be alive, grateful for the love around us that saves us, and the risks that those who love us take, because it is right to be thankful for all blessings. But here we are again in society and in our church, stirring up all those same issues and hurt. There are gaffes, and there are cons, and there are parties at palaces during which sinful pronouncements are made, in the name of our long-suffering Jesus, maybe it would have been better just to stay home. Or maybe this time I should cry out to those same old hometown bullies that I have not sinned. I actually think this is a moment in our collective lives sitting on our pallets to tell our stories. The last time I was in this church, years ago, we were waiting for the Windsor Report to be published. We didn't know what it would say at the time, but we were pretty sure it wasn't going to be good news. How bad was the measure we were waiting to take? And we have waited and waited and responded and responded. We have been disappointed by what our bishops have been able to say as a body when they gather. We have seen legislation passed at General Convention that tells us the church will do just fine for another season without the full inclusion of all people in all orders of ministry in this church. I actually think it's time for many of us to stop only reacting to other people's awful statements and lobbying simply for power within our own church. Those things are important, but I don't know that they should be our focus anymore. They won't be in my life. I think we need to go out and find our dressers of sycamore trees and herders of whatever it is you would herd if you were herding in Atlanta. (laughs) Amos, in our second reading, was not a man of the temple or a person in the court of the king. He was a person with jobs. He had jobs. He worked all day most days. He probably ate with his family and talked with his friends. He probably showed up for religious things when he was supposed to, and probably only sometimes. 
He goes to the court of the king and says, God has spoken to me. I have a story to tell. And it might not sound like good news to you, but it is my truth. I don't actually think that you would be here today if you didn't have a story like that in your life. The church is not nearly welcoming enough for it to not have been a very deliberate choice at some point in your journey for you to remain here. LGBT people, more than most, have a story to tell of how God found them or how they found God. I came out in the city here in Atlanta when I was 17. If it weren't for Tina Pippin at Agnes Scott College and the bibliography in the back of the syllabus for her classes, I'm not sure that I would have survived. My family is from India, and they're not particularly conservative, but I knew this one wasn't going to go over very well with any of them. And I was actually afraid they would hospitalize me if they found out too early, and I wasn't 18 yet, so I was afraid that they actually could if they wanted to. So I didn't say anything to them until much later. I was outed to my father, but he was so ashamed that he kept it to himself, so nobody talked about it in my family. When I finished college and we went to India, we toured around for a while and ended up at my grandparents' homes in the south of India in Kerala. My family is from the Orthodox community in India, and we believe that Thomas came to the southwest coast of India, where Kerala is, and converted 50 or so families in the first century, and we are the community that remains. The oldest church in that tradition is in Kotam, which is the town that my mother was raised in. Her family on her mother's side are from that place and from those churches. So we stopped there on our way to my grandmother's house to say a prayer of thanksgiving for having arrived home safely. It's a, a custom there. And I went after this long trip to India and my years of being out but not with my family and my own sense of vocation with all the questions that a 21-year-old has. How do I pursue this call to ministry at the time I was living in Dallas with my parents? How could I be faithful to my parents' family heritage, of which I was and am so proud? And how could I be queer as I was clear that I was and out and not afraid? So I went to this church with my mother and I took off my shoes on the steps and walked into these pools with my mother where women in our families have for over a thousand years washed their feet before going into the church. I walked into the old church with the really bad, cheap art and the fluorescent tube lighting and the flashing Christmas lights up front that were someone's idea of modern and probably supposed to appeal to youth like me. I walked to the very middle of this huge empty church and sat down on a rug and said, thank you for bringing me home. And I swear I heard a voice say, get up and walk in English. So I was sure I was sitting somewhere I shouldn't be, and I looked around for the verger, because I'm an Episcopalian. (laughs) But there was no verger with a stick pointing me to where I should be. There was no one in the entire church but me and my mother. And I swear I heard, I had heard someone say, get up and walk. So my mother came over and asked what had happened, and I was 21 and rude and tired from six weeks traveling with my parents. So I said nothing at all, I'm sure quite rudely, and got up to leave. My mother asked me if I knew where I was sitting. Of course, I didn't know. So she moved the rug that I had been sitting on and showed me the inscription on the floor. She said it was a spot that her family visits annually for a death remembrance ceremony, one that she had always attended until she moved away to go to college some 30 or 40 years before. It was the grave of my mother's ancestor, who had lived at the turn of the last century, and who had been a beloved priest of that church. We all have stories to tell, profound stories, that the church needs. 
for ourselves and for the good of all of those around us. God is working in us. We don't need legislation to prove that. And lay people, like Amos, are the most free to proclaim it from the mountaintops and fearlessly. God has worked wonders in our lives. With the way technologies are developing, there is no reason that we cannot tell and record and publish our stories with very little interference in between. It's quite remarkable and a gift to the church. We don't have to wait for books and anthologies and production companies for videos and DVDs to be produced. We have YouTubes and podcasting. The president of the House of Deputies is bringing the public narrative project to all the provincial synods and general convention. And it's basically a way to get you to pull the story of your conversion and of your life experience out of yourself and tell it, tell it compellingly to the world. And I think under two, in under two minutes is the plan, but I'm not sure that's always possible. But we should all be a part of it. We have to tell our stories out loud and we have to record them. It is our gift to the church. It is the outcome of our struggles. It is us sitting up. We know who we are in the eyes of God because we have had to figure it out for ourselves. The church has not always been there to help us do it, but the church needs to know how to do it now. We can't stay on our beds inside any longer. The moment for the radical healing of our church is now. And we, us, our lives, our relationships, our ministries, can be the site for that miracle. Let us pray that we will never be the agents of anyone else's oppression, and let us not be complacent in our own humiliation. Today, Jesus says to all of us, there is no sin in you. Get up and walk.